Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Every month, about 1,800 people are released from Pennsylvania State Prisons. And within three years, more than half of them will be arrested again or back behind bars. To better understand the complicated mix of factors behind that statistic, WHYY's Assistant News Director Katie Culinary spent the last year following one woman, Radina Rodriguez, who is from Harrisburg, after she was released from state prison. Katie, always good to have you on the air. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. How did this documentary come to be? Well, WHYY was involved uh, with several other news outlets in the Philadelphia area, including the Philadelphia Inquirer and Daily News, um, in a solutions journalism collaborative so uh, called the Reentry Project. So the idea behind this was that all these news outlets were going to spend a year covering various issues related to prisoner reentry because of the statistic that you just mentioned at the top of the show. Um, this is something that we, you know, these, these recidivism rates are perennially troubling. The statistics uh, have not changed much, even though there really kind of has been a kind of a big focus on criminal justice reform and trying to help people who are coming back from prison because people on both sides of the political aisle are realizing that this is not only a cost issue, but this is also a societal issue that we have all these people coming out of prison who are having trouble making it um, when they get out. So the idea was all these outlets were going to get together and do stories reporting on issues of reentry, but with a solutions focus, trying to see what are the things that are working to help people and what are the things that maybe are not but could be improved? What are other states and other cities doing? And so my idea for this reentry project was, hey, why don't we just follow one person and get really close to their story and just zoom the camera lens in really close to one individual and their life and see what happens. And I didn't set out to tell you know, a, a great story. You know, this is a success story. I didn't I didn't set out to tell, you know, a story of somebody who didn't make it. I just wanted to tell one person's story. That one person is Radina Rodriguez. As I mentioned, she's from Harrisburg. How did you meet her and then decide to follow her? Yeah. So when I was I kind of settled on this idea of following one person, my editor said, OK, great, go for it. Um, I was like, well, OK, how do I how do I find somebody? How do I find the right um, you know, character who is going to be willing to open herself to me and uh, let me really deep into her life? So one thing led to another. And, and I eventually found myself in a classroom in Philadelphia of the program that's run by a uh, local anti-violence group called Mothers in Charge that focuses primarily on anti-gun violence, they've started this program where they're taking women who are released from prison and, uh, you know, helping them. It's called Women Working for a Change. And the whole idea is that if you can change a person's thinking, you can change the way they behave. And it's a curriculum that was developed by the National Institute of Corrections with this idea of doing kind of almost cognitive behavior modification, that if if you can help a person kind of consider the choices that they make a little bit more deeply. You can help them make better choices down the line because, of course, these people ended up in the position they were in because they made some very bad choices. So all this to say, I'm in this classroom. I'm watching these women kind of process various emotions, talk about choices they've made in their lives with the idea that one of these women might emerge as somebody that I could follow for a year. And um, they actually asked me to stand up at the back of the class and introduce myself, explain why I was there. And immediately after the class, Radina came right up to me and said, I'm game. I've got a story to tell. So I thought, all right, great. Let's go. And that was it. She certainly does. What made her a good subject for your story? Well, 
what made her a really good subject was just the fact that she was so game. Um, at no point in this entire process did she ever say, oh, I don't want you to um, put that on the air. Uh, I don't want you to talk about that. She was incredibly open with me, um, shared even details that, you know, I knew at the end of the day I wasn't going to put on the air because they really were that intimate, but she just was completely open with me, which is really what you need when you're going to be spending so much time with someone. The other thing was that, you know, she's um, in many ways a deeply flawed person. Again, she's made a lot of really bad choices in her life. On the one hand, she recognizes that. And on the other hand, I think she also sees herself as a victim of her own circumstances, a victim of her own really chaotic and difficult childhood that she had growing up in Harrisburg. And so... Well, while there is that, there are kind of all these, you know, um, sort of parts of her life that have been, um, you know, very difficult, have had uh, very negative effects, especially for her children, as we'll hear in the documentary. Um, she's also an incredibly likable person. She's just fun to be around. And she has this really contagious laugh. She's funny. And, you know, just as two women spending time together, you know, often we would, you know, kind of go into side conversations. Like one time I called her and we had both just gotten our nails done and we were comparing colors. So there was there was kind of this connection between us. We, we enjoyed spending time together. And so that that gave us this level of trust where I knew that the things that she was telling me, you know, I, I would go and fact check them and and I would say nine times out of ten they would they would completely check out. With that background, with that set up, let's listen. Here's Katie Culinary from WHYY with Radina Rodriguez. It's late December, and Radina Rodriguez is sitting in a classroom in Philadelphia. She's here because a month ago she was released from state prison. And she says she wants to change. I'm Radina. I'm leaving behind drinking, DUIs, prostitution jail, drugs, resentment, using people, codependency, selling drugs, impulsive thinking, the streets, negative behaviors, rebellion, stealing, manipulating, and lying. Redina's 48 years old and has a contagious, raspy laugh, green eyes, and a mane of curly hair dyed a dark shade of red. She's part of a 10-week program called Women Working for a Change, run by the Philadelphia anti-violence group Mothers in Charge. Now it's week five, the halfway point. Outside during a smoke break, Radina tells me she's been in prison for 11 of the last 17 years. Her first crime was 25 years ago. Back in 1992, I got a forgery. Radina was 24, and she got hooked on crack cocaine. I wasn't one of those typical, you know, I was smoking weed and drinking when I was a young kid or anything like that. I had, um, you know, a difficult childhood. And instead of turning to drugs, I turned to relationships. And um, I turned to the first drug that the guy I was in a relationship had. And it stuck. Redina and a friend were arrested for forging about 450 bucks worth of checks and cashing them at grocery stores in central Pennsylvania where she grew up. She eventually pleaded guilty to three felony charges and was sentenced to 23 months probation. That touched off a vicious cycle of addiction and probation violations that went on for several years. Then in 1999, Radina was arrested in a notorious crack house in Harrisburg. Reading the court transcripts, the judge really threw the book at her. He told her she thought she could just do whatever she wanted and get off easy by giving him a sob story about her children. Guess what, the judge said. The string has run out. He resentenced her to 3 to 21 years in Pennsylvania State Prison. Since then, 
Regina's been in and out of prison six times. The last time was for a DUI, her first new charge in more than two decades. I always thought like, oh, I've been screwed by the justice system because I got three to 21 years. I'm doing time that murderers get, you know, for being an addict. And it's still at the end of the day, what I'm learning is it's a choice. You can use or not use. Now, Redina and the dozen other women in the Mothers in Charge program are getting paid $200 a week to work, though not in the traditional sense. Aside from writing resumes and getting job leads, the women are working on how to deal with some pretty complex emotions and coming to terms with the trauma they've faced. There's also a huge emphasis on spirituality, leaning on a higher power, and on accepting their checkered and painful past while learning to let them go. It can be really intense. Take this moment with one of the facilitators, Sharon Thomas, who herself is a recovering addict. Because it's the ones that love you the most that hold you more accountable for the stuff you've done. Because we hurt our families. We forgot that. Sometimes it takes 15 years and they still want to hold that over your head. But that's up to you how you receive that. I don't receive it. I don't. They all suffer from abandonment, you know, every one of them. And I know that I play a part in that. For Radina, her kids are a major part of coming to terms with her past. She has five of them, all adults now, except for her youngest, 13-year-old Jordan. They were all raised by myriad relatives and foster parents, and for much of their childhoods, Radina wasn't there. She says the gnawing guilt used to drive her back to using drugs and alcohol. But Mothers in Charge is helping her to accept that so she can move on. She recently reunited with the youngest after not seeing Jordan since she was six years old. I was on my way there. I told her I missed the bus and I wouldn't be there until 9 o'clock at night. And she was really upset. But the truth is I I got there on time. (laughs) And I walked up to the door with a caseworker and she almost knocked the caseworker over coming out the door to get to me. And... When she hugged me and just started sobbing in my arms, like it was, it's like everything in the world was okay because she loved me, because she forgave me. And at that moment, I knew that I was going to do anything to do right by her too. Across the United States, there are eight times as many women in prison today as there were in 1980. In Pennsylvania, there are 10 times as many. And as with men, the odds are stacked high against them when they get out. Christy Vischer has been studying prisoners' reentry to society for more than 15 years. I'm the director for the Center for Drug and Health Studies at the University of Delaware, and I'm also a professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice. Vischer says men and women have a much higher risk of dying within the first six months of being released from an overdose, health problems, or from going home to violent communities. So this six months is is really critical. And unfortunately, reentry specialists haven't really understood the importance of this particular period. And if they do survive, most people released from prison, more than two-thirds of them, get arrested again or go back to prison within three years. And this has not changed for 20 or 30 years. We're seeing the same recidivism rates. 
even though we've had all this focus on reentry since early 2000. And for women in the system, the road can be even more difficult. They're far more likely than men to have serious mental health problems and to struggle with addiction. In Pennsylvania last year, almost 60 percent of female inmates in state prisons required intense substance abuse treatment, compared to about 40 percent of male inmates. After so many years of cycling in and out of prison, what's different for Radina this time? She says the switch flipped in 2014, the last time she was arrested. It used to make me mad, like, when I got caught, because I wanted to keep going. I wanted to keep running. But this time, I can remember when I got arrested for my DUI, I I was uh, a feeling of relief washed over me. I can remember praying and telling God that I'm tired. I'm tired of living like this. This isn't me. And I didn't really believe in myself at that point, like that I could stop or that I could change. I just knew that I had the willingness. But she's also getting some help that wasn't there the last time she got out. One month before she was released, Radina opted into a state program, giving returning inmates a medication called Vivitrol. The monthly injection blocks the opiate receptors on your brain. So if you were to drink a lot of alcohol, for example, you still wouldn't feel drunk. I consider it to be like a miracle drug because by now I would have had a craving to use. But Radina says so far she hasn't. The Pennsylvania Department of Corrections gave her the first shot before she was released and is helping her get 11 more. Another big change, Radina's from Harrisburg, but this time she didn't go back there. Instead, she was released to a halfway house in Philadelphia, and her counselor there got her an interview with the Mothers in Charge program. Radina has big goals now. She wants to get back custody of her daughter, Jordan. To do that, she needs to find a stable job and a place to live. But as it gets closer to the big Mothers in Charge graduation ceremony in February, Radina's getting a little nervous. The night before the ceremony, Radina calls with some bad news. Yes. Can you kind of start from the beginning? Okay, yeah. She'd submitted a request to state parole to leave the halfway house and move into a friend's apartment back in Harrisburg. They denied it. Radina says her friend had spoken to the landlord, who'd said no problem. And then the lady, the head lady, called back and said, well, I don't know who you talked to, but they shouldn't have told you that. She said, because we do not allow people with felonies in our complex. And unlike some of her fellow graduates, Radina doesn't have a job or another program lined up yet. Every day I was making marks and I was bettering myself there. And it's hard when you go from four days a week, eight hours a day, you know, putting so much of yourself into a program and then boom, you're done. You're like, now what? Now what am I going to do? Wearing shiny blue caps and gowns, Radina and her classmates are lining up in the hallway, getting ready for their entrance. As they walk slowly up to the front of the room, they pass tables of past graduates, their friends, family members, and some of their children. No one's here for Radina. Like most graduations, there's inspirational music and speeches, and of course, special pieces of paper. So you got the certificate now. It's official. It's official. It is official. Now I just need a job. I need a job. (laughs) 
I need a job, anybody. <laughs> You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. You're listening to a documentary produced by WHYY and Philadelphia's assistant news director, Katie Culinary, who spent the last year following one woman, Redina Rodriguez, who is from Harrisburg, after she was released from state prison. Let's get back to the documentary. Hey, it's been a while. How's it going? The next time I see Redina, she's yeah. dressed to the nines. I love it. Tell me what you're wearing. I'm wearing a pantsuit with a white tank top and these beautiful shoes that I picked out that match perfectly. They really do. They really do. It's a rainy afternoon in April and Redina's modeling for me outside the dressing room of a Philadelphia nonprofit that helps women struggling to find work get the right look for job interviews. It's been two months since I last saw her at her graduation. I was discouraged for a little while because I was applying every day for jobs and it just didn't seem like anything was happening. And then all of a sudden, all these interviews kept popping up every day. So I went to a couple. Um, the zoo interview was my favorite, like the one... At the Philly Zoo? Yeah. What was the job? Taking care of um, horses and ponies and giving out rides to kids and stuff. But it only paid seven fifty an hour, so unfortunately I can't raise my daughter on that. Redina's also but trying to figure out where to live. On one hand, she really wants to go back to Harrisburg. It's more affordable, and she knows how to get around without a car. Plus, she has a lead on a recovery house out there. And she was offered a job at a nearby warehouse making $12.75 an hour. But Harrisburg is where the darker parts of Redina's past, the people, places, and things associated with her addiction, could come back to haunt her. And now she has a second interview in Philadelphia at an insurance company. And she wants to give it a shot. Still wearing those shoes, Redina heads to the front of the store to get her picture taken in her new professional ensemble. And she strikes a pose. One, two, three. Okay. Did you get the shoes? Yes. I did a full body shot. All Redina knows right now is that she wants to leave the halfway house where she's been living for five months. Whenever Radina and the other residents want to go out, they need to get passes signed by both their parole officers and the staff in advance. Residents also have to go through metal detectors and get patted down by security guards whenever they enter the building. You know, they're going up between your legs and they're going across your bra and down the middle and it's ridiculous and it's violating and it's demeaning. This is supposed to be a step toward society. Redina admits that, in many ways, the limits have been good for her. But the longer she's there, the more she longs for her own place, where her youngest daughter, Jordan, can live with her. Every other weekend, Redina takes a nearly six-hour bus ride from Philadelphia to spend time with Jordan at a hotel in Williamsport, up in northeast Pennsylvania. The hotel is paid for by the local county children and youth services agency, so Redina and Jordan can work on rebuilding their relationship. I need a pencil. Jordan's been living in Williamsport with her adult half-sister, but was raised by her grandparents in New Jersey. So what do you have so far? On this Sunday morning, Jordan's working on her application letter to Milton Hershey, a private boarding school for disadvantaged kids. You need to come up with something unique, though. Okay, but I'm going to put the reasoning behind my career move. Like, you're going to put the reasoning behind your your career move as far as wanting to be 
a um, correctional officer. Okay, that's a good idea. That's right. Jordan wants to be a correctional officer when she grows up. Back in New Jersey, she worked at her uncle's karate school, coaching younger kids. But she wasn't just showing them how to kick or punch. Jordan says they were also working on conflict avoidance. I like to, like, instruct a better mentality into them. So I, like, ended up tying that into correctional officer. Like, if I could help inmates go into, like, a better path, like my mom's, like, going to a better path after she got out, I feel like I could be, like, a really good source for them because not a lot of inmates have, like, visitors, family, or people that are there for them. They're all on their own. Redina and Jordan haven't spent this much time together since Jordan was two. I can see their resemblance, especially in their long, dark curls and their silly sense of humor. I shall not let go. Never. At one point during my visit, they start play wrestling, rolling around on one of the beds. And this is called the scissor. Before they check out of the hotel... I asked Jordan if she worries things will go back to the way they used to be. I mean, like, there's always a thought, like, hey, like, something like an addict, like, might relapse, but I have faith in her. How come? Because I can't really doubt her. I have to have faith in her, or else, like, this won't work. Jordan isn't the only one feeling optimistic about her mom's progress. It's like night and day. She's come so far, and... She's what you hope for in the system, that change can happen. That's Jordan's caseworker, Crystal Minier. She's been with Lycoming County Children and Youth Services for 30 years. Many of the kids she worked with at the start of her career are parents themselves, parents with kids Crystal is now responsible for. She says a lot of those parents would be back behind bars or would have relapsed by now. But so far, Redina is staying on track. The fact that she's doing well in her recovery and that allows her to be able to focus on her daughter as well. If her recovery was in jeopardy, we wouldn't see this. Crystal says if things keep going this well, Redina could get custody of Jordan within a year. About a week after I spent the day with Redina and Jordan, I got a text from her saying she had moved to that recovery house near Harrisburg. A month later, on Memorial Day, I go out to visit her. The house is in Lemoyne, a small suburban town just across the Susquehanna River from the state capital. She shows me around the living room and the kitchen, and then takes me upstairs to her bedroom. It's decorated with hot pink leopard print curtains with a matching bedspread. There's a fish swimming in a bowl in the corner. Redina seems really happy here, but exhausted. She's been working the late shift at a fulfillment center for an online pet supply company, driving around a cart and lifting heavy bags of dog food. And she's going to at least four Narcotics Anonymous meetings a week. Redina says being back in her old haunts has been easier than she thought. Because I'm somewhere centered. I'm very centered in my, in my thinking, and I guess I just don't want a bad ending in my story. That and I just, I don't. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. That last thing Radina said about not wanting a bad ending to her story would haunt me for the rest of the summer. I would often lie awake at night wondering why she'd said that. Did she have a reason to think her story wouldn't end well? About a month later, she stopped picking up my calls. 
please leave your message for Redima Rodriguez. From the end of June until September, I can't reach Redina. Before that, it wasn't unusual for her to go even a few weeks without texting or calling me back. But this was different. Okay, Crystal, can you hear me okay? okay. Yep. In early August, I finally reached Crystal, Redina's daughter's caseworker. So what happened? Uh, she was here for a visit. It was a regular visit. She it was the first Friday in July. Redina had traveled up to Williamsport for one of her weekend visits with Jordan. Crystal dropped them off at the hotel. Then the two of them met up with one of Redina's friends for pizza. Afterwards, Redina told Jordan she was going to take her friend home. And Jordan went back to the hotel room alone. Next morning, I get this frantic call from her daughter saying, she left me at the hotel two hours after you dropped us off and never came home, and I called all night. I woke up to the uh, hotel phone ringing, and they told me that an Uber was downstairs to get me. Jordan says she got in the Uber, which took her to Redina's friend's house. A half hour later, she ended up turning up there, and she was, like, crying. And, like, she tried to hug me, and she was like, I missed you. And I was like, please don't touch me. Like, why are you lying to me? Redina told Jordan she had left her phone at her friend's house and gone back to get it. Then she went to buy them some food. And then her phone died. And then she made up another story. Eventually, Redina admitted what really happened. She was like, well, I ran into your dad. You don't just run into him. I don't even just run into him, especially at, like, midnight or something. She's like, I ran into your dad, and he offered me some drugs. I was like, you should have said no and turned away. She ended up doing drugs with him. And then um, she was walking down and a man picked her up. He so happened to have drugs, too. About six weeks before that night at the hotel, Redina had stopped taking Vivitrol. Remember, that's the monthly injections she was getting to help treat her addictions. When she moved back to central Pennsylvania in April, she needed to change her health insurance. But her new plan wouldn't kick in until July. Radina was referred to a mobile clinic, but the nurse there didn't know Radina is part of a state program giving Vivitrol to former inmates. That means if her insurance wouldn't cover it, the state would have paid for the shots. Not knowing, the nurse instead prescribed Radina the same medication in a daily pill form. At some point, Radina stopped taking the pills. And three days before her new insurance was supposed to kick in, she relapsed. I can't tell you how many times those kind of things happen. They're glitches that are ridiculous. You know, if some my insurance lapsed for some reason and I can't get my thyroid pill, I'm not going to risk death. That's a little different than someone like Redina that absolutely needs to have it. You found something that works. She can't be without it. In September, Redina and Jordan had their next hearing in family court. The court hearing officer ruled it would not be in Jordan's best interest to continue her visits with her mom. And the court has not terminated Redina's parental rights, but for now, she's no longer allowed to contact Jordan. Not long after that, Redina relapsed again. I'm not really, like, sad. I'm more, like, angry for her. Jordan turned 14 in August. 
She thinks she might try to reconnect with her mom when she gets older. But for now, Jordan says things have gotten better since she cut off contact. Her grades are up, and she has more time for her friends. I didn't want to end up in the same place my sisters did. They were worried about her throughout their whole life. Like, is she going to relapse? Is she okay? Are we going to have a relationship now? I didn't want it to be like that. I didn't want my life to revolve around what she did and how it affected me. I I guess I wanted to, like, move on a bit. On a Friday morning at the end of September, I finally reach Radina. I'm not recording because I don't expect her to pick up, but she does. Her voice is hoarse. She sounds so tired. She tells me she's checking into rehab as we speak. On Halloween, I drive to Shippensburg to pick her up for our last interview. Hey. Hi. I'm glad you brought lots of help. It's been a while. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. A nurse helps load Radina's backpack, suitcase, and two paper bags full of medications into the trunk of my car and says goodbye to her in this way that's so cautiously encouraging. I wonder if she really believes what she's saying. All right, Tina, good luck. Oh, okay. thank you so much. I'm very glad you look 100% better. Thank you. Hang in there, okay? Thank you. Good luck. Thanks. You're going to be great. As for Radina, she's ready to take on the world again with a vengeance. Oh, we have so much to talk about. I do want to give you Betty's information. It's been five months since I've talked to Radina in person. And as I drive her back to the recovery house in Harrisburg, I realize I've never seen Radina this angry or resentful before. A longtime friend who'd been supporting her financially, paying her rent and her phone bill, is cutting her off. And then there's Jordan, who's joined two of Radina's other children in not speaking to her. Do you think that's the, that's the right thing for them to do? The right thing? I don't know. I know that, like... Radina feels deeply ambivalent. On one level, she recognizes her kids should not enable her addiction by making excuses for her. But she also yearns for their love. And I think most of all, for them to want her in their lives. So do I think it's the right thing? No, I would prefer that they, even though this is not the first time I relapsed, I would like to think that they could try to support me because their support for me Oh my God, it it would shoot so much motivation into me if I, if I had them, I don't know, maybe this, this is such a hard topic for me because part the part of me that desperately wants them in my life says, you know, you need to support me. You need to be there. You need to forgive me. But then the part of me being a mother who does love them and does want to protect them also know that they need protection from me and my addiction. In the year I've spent with Radina, this is the thing that surprised me the most. It's no secret that people coming home from prison face a lot of challenges, like struggling to stay sober, finding someone willing to hire them or give them a decent place to live despite their criminal records. That's why the recidivism rate is still so stubbornly high. But unlike many people, some of those things came easier for Radina than I'd expected. Zooming in the camera lens on her life, 
I saw something else. I saw how vulnerable the years of addiction and incarceration have left her and her family. Something that doesn't just change after a 10-week program or 60 days in rehab. I also saw the internal war people like her are fighting every day. It's a daily struggle between accepting the things they've done and moving on, and the ever-present reminders that they're the parents who left, who committed crimes. It's a lot to bear, not just for Redina, but also for her kids, who are fighting a similar war, grappling with the spider web of consequences. I hope one day that they will see and say, okay, my mom was 48 years old and she got clean and she stayed clean. She's such an inspiration to me. That's, that's my biggest goal in the world is to have my children see me as an inspiration for getting clean and not a failure. November 14th marked one year since Radina was released from prison. And in some ways, she's even farther away from achieving her goals now than she was then. She's only been off drugs and alcohol for a few months. And for now, the chance to be a mother and raise her youngest daughter is off the table. She's still living at the recovery house in Harrisburg and working for an auto mechanic. Although she's relapsed twice this year, she hasn't been arrested. And she's back on Vivitrol. She'll be on parole until 2027, when she's 59. Katie, I have to say, wow, that was powerful. It's not often that a journalist gets to follow one subject for a year. And when you do, you get to see a side of people. We get to see them in real life and they're in uh, what they're really like rather than in an interview setting. With all that said, what were your impressions of, of following Redina for a year? Talk about your thoughts as, as you got to know her. Yeah, you know, I mean, when I first met her, again, I found her to be an incredibly likable person. Um, we had a particularly powerful interview, actually, in my car. Uh, we never actually were able to go and record interviews inside the halfway house where she was living while she was still in Philadelphia. So we would often take my uh, yellow Ford Fiesta and sit across the street in a parking lot and talk together. And we talked for about two hours that first time in our first really in-depth interview. And so she kind of went from being somebody who was sort of a very frank talker uh, you know, oh, yeah, I did this. And, uh, you know, this is what my experience was like to all of a sudden, you know, she broke down when she was telling me um, about meeting her uh, youngest daughter again for the first time since she was six years old. And I really kind of got to see that range of emotion um, and just how how incredibly complicated her family life was as a result of her incarceration and, and drug use over those many, many years. And and by the way, the incarceration and drug use, as it's alluded to it, that towards the end of the story of of her ex-husband, um, you know, so these these were children who were dealing with not just one parent who was caught up in this whole cycle, but but two in many cases. And so. That kind of, you know, gave me more of an experience of, of getting to know her more deeply than I've had with any other source for any other story. And then, you know, as the months went on, um, you know, there were there would go very long stretches where, you know, we wouldn't necessarily talk, especially after she moved. We would go. I would call her every couple of weeks and just kind of see how things were going. And there were definitely days and I would tell, you know, she was having a bad day. And then other days she would say, oh, I'm doing amazing. And then again, there was a certain point where she just completely cut off contact and I thought, no, this something is wrong. And then, of course, we found out that she relapsed. And one thing that I didn't get into in the story was we had a text exchange in September 
when I finally, I just thought, well, let me just try texting her and seeing what happens. And she actually texted me back and said, you wouldn't really like how my story is ending right now. And I said, well, I don't think it's the end yet, but but what's what's going on? And that was actually the moment that she told me that she had relapsed. It turned out that she would then go on to relapse again not long after that. Um, and so it just really was, you know, for me personally, it was a a, a roller coaster of emotion just kind of, you know, I, I – I got to this point where I really wanted to see her do well. Um, For the first, I would say, five, six months or so that I was following her, things were actually going really, really well. Like Crystal says at that point, um, you know, she's really kind of becoming almost the poster child that people can change. And then just to kind of feel her drop off, suddenly I had this experience that was a lot like, I guess, what her kids had experienced for so many years. Um, she relapsed, and all of a sudden she was gone. I couldn't hear from her, and I didn't know what was going on. And, and I, I can imagine as, as frustrating and as sad and as concerning as that was for me um, trying to tell this story, it must have been you know that much worse for her children who were relying on her to be their parent. Let's talk about that relapse. As you said, uh, she relapsed not just once but twice. How typical is Radina? I would say, you know, Radina's story, you know, while it's incredibly unique and she's a unique individual, I would say it's uh, something that, you know, we see all the time. Um, You know, you know, from from doing a lot of coverage of the opioid crisis that I wouldn't say relapse is inevitable, but it's definitely, you know, they say in that world, it's a part of recovery. It's something that happens to many, many people. And um, it's something that People who study this are, are really starting to zero in on this moment of relapse. You know, you can almost be going many years being clean, and then all of a sudden that craving just just comes back. And it's something that scientists are even trying to really get a handle on right now, why that happens. But um, I've had conversations with a lot of people about that since the story aired and while I was reporting it, kind of talking about, you know, if you're not a drug user and you don't know what that feels like, think about anything in your life that's hard for you to resist. For me, it's food. I'm a big, <laughs> um, you know, foodie. I love sweets. I love to really eat anything. And it can be, you know, hard sometimes to kind of tell yourself to stop, especially if you're if you're wanting to, you know, maybe cut back a little bit. Think about how, you know, difficult it can be to make any kind of change. Um I mean, for her, this is something that, you know, for many people is a life or death situation, and it is just so hard to stop. And I think that she really reflects that, even though she's got these kids at stake, it can be so easy to say, yeah, but how could you turn your back on your kids? Even her own kids say that. But even they express this ambivalence of like, well, it's not that she's necessarily turning her back on us. It's just that this pull over here is so strong, but then it leaves us over here in this bad situation. One thing that Radina said in the documentary and wanted to ask you about, she says at one point that it's a choice whether to use drugs or not. And mm-hmm. during this opioid crisis, you know, we, we hear so often from the people who who treat those who are addicted and those who are suffering from substance abuse, that it is a disease. So can you shed some light on what she was saying with it's a choice whether – did she mean whether to start using drugs or just what? You know, that's a really interesting question. And I feel like I hear that kind of language, like it's a choice. You can you can make a good decision or a bad decision um, from a lot of people that I've spoken to uh, besides Radina who – um, 
you know, who, who are drug users. And you also kind of heard it in the context of the Women Working for a Change program, this, this idea that, you know, it takes seven seconds to make a good or a bad decision to use drugs or not to use drugs, to commit that crime or not commit that crime. Um, but at the same time, you also hear them talk a lot about, yes, this this idea that it's the disease, that once you start using, it takes over and you almost don't have any control. So I think it's this um, kind of really interesting, I think I think she sees it both ways. On the one hand, she sees herself as having powerful choices to make. And then, and, and some days that's, that's kind of like the stronger, you know, it's like having the angel or the devil on her shoulder. I think she sees herself as one day, you know, she's, she's really feeling empowered to be able to make these choices to have a better life. And then other days, depending on what else is going on, she feels almost powerless to resist it. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're speaking with Katie Culinary, who is the assistant news director at WHYY in Philadelphia, about a documentary that she produced with Redina Rodriguez, a woman who had just been released from prison. Katie followed Redina for a year, uh, talked about the, her situation, her struggles, the challenges that she faced during that year, her family, her drug use, and the, just a whole lot of uh, challenges that the Redina had to overcome. Something that really sticks out to me, Katie, in the documentary is how much of an impact a family member's drug use and incarceration can have on other family members. I mean, that's one of the big takeaways I had from your documentary. Yeah, for sure. That was that was one of my big takeaways as well. Um, I mean, when you just think about the impact just on Jordan, but actually I talked to um, one of her other older daughters who didn't make it into the final cut of the documentary who talked to me a lot and very frankly about the impact that her mother's absence had on her life. I mean, she told me that um, she tried to commit suicide when she was 16 years old and um, was living in a bad um, foster situation. And it just was really, really tough for her. And she said to me, um, that she was surprised that none of the five kids ended up dead because of all the things that they had been through. And so that, to me, was just absolutely stunning. And I think, as we heard Ray Dina at the end of the documentary kind of wrestle with this, on the one hand, she knows her role in in causing those things, but I think she also feels very... Um, you know, she she really does want her kids um, to want her in their lives very, very deeply. And it's just, you know, it really it, it's an incredibly sad place to be because, you know, what what's the right thing for her to do? What's the right thing for her kids to do? And I think, you know, I kind of left the documentary with that question. I don't think anybody really knows. I don't think the kids know. I don't think she knows. Um, and it's something that they're going to have to kind of, you know, determine day by day. Did any of the children become drug users themselves? Yes. One of her daughters um, is in the throes of deep heroin addiction. And actually, uh, another another portion that of my interviews with Redina that didn't make it into the final cut of the documentary was when I asked her about, you know, watching her own daughter going down this road of addiction and incarceration. And, you know, what I asked her at one point, is there anything that you feel like with your experience now looking back that you could say to her that could help her in this moment? And she said, you know, frankly, no, there is nothing that I could say to her. There is no program. There is no amount of time in prison that I, you know, could prescribe for her 
that could tell her to just stop. And the way Radina described it to me was that it takes, you know, a quote unquote heart change in order to decide that you're just done living that kind of life. But going back to the question that you asked me before the break about this idea of of choice, that was a big theme and a big question that I asked myself while I was reporting this story. Like, well, to what extent can people in Radina's or her daughter's or other people's situations choose um, how much of it is the kind of structural things um, that they encounter, the barriers that they face when trying to either get treatment or get housing or find a job versus their own internal decisions that they make. And I don't know that I really came to a great conclusion about that. I think the jury is still out on that. Regina's daughter Jordan was 13 when you started and she's 14 now. She seems very mature for her age. Incredibly so. Yeah, I was I was very impressed with her, as well as the, the other daughter that I just mentioned. Um, I mean, it seems like, you know, just despite all this dysfunction, she's got some really incredible children who who are really bright, like Radina is bright, who are are, are artistic and, you know, interested in, uh, you know, making a difference in the world. And uh, you also mentioned at the end of the documentary, toward the end of the documentary, that uh, Jordan didn't have a relationship with her mother at that point and that uh, uh, all the children didn't seem to have a relationship with Radina. Has that changed at all? Well, actually, the the oldest daughter actually has had a relationship with Radina for some time. Um, and she actually, when I reached out to her, she declined to talk to me Um before the documentary aired, I really wanted to get her perspective as kind of the one child who'd kind of stuck it out with Radina. Um, and she was a little freaked out when I reached her. Um, but in terms of the other children, um, I'm not really sure. There's She has one son who I know has completely cut off contact with her. She's got, uh, he, he has children, grandchildren of Radina's that she's never met. And um, as for some of her other daughters, um I contacted one who had spoken to me before the story aired, not Jordan, um, who told me that listening to her mom say all this to me gave her some things to think about. She'd kind of sworn off contact with her mother after trying to maybe have a relationship with her earlier this year. And she said, you know, it just was hard for her to believe all the things that her mom was saying about wanting to change. But hearing her say it to me, another person who was kind of more removed from the situation, she said made her kind of think of things differently. Where that goes, I'm really not sure. As for Jordan, as far as I know, things are kind of status quo. Again, the... um, family court hearing that they had resulted in them no longer being able to have contact or visits, but the caseworker, Crystal Minier, is encouraging Jordan not to completely cut off contact with Radina forever. She's trying to leave the door open with this idea that maybe, you know, Jordan's on the waiting list at the Milton Hershey School right now. She's hoping to get in and finish out her high school years there with this idea that she'll be closer to Radina, closer to the Harrisburg area. Maybe they'll spend the summers together. Um, I think Crystal is really urging Jordan to try to keep that door open and have a relationship. And in some ways, that would be very important for Radina. I mean, obviously, it's what what must be done needs to be best for Jordan um, and her development and her ability to graduate high school and, and go on to do all the things she wants to do. But one of the really important things that um, those who kind of beat 
the recidivism rates have in common is that they have really strong social supports in their life. And that's especially important for women. A lot of the reasons why women coming out of prison have, um, you know, they end up going back or they end up using drugs again is because they don't have the proper social supports or they end up in bad relationships, as we saw with Radina's history. And so I think for Radina, in order to have um, you know, continued success with her recovery, having those really strong relationships is going to be key. But obviously, the relationship with her family is incredibly fragile right now. And so where that goes, it's not totally clear yet. You picked Radina up uh, in Shippensburg when she went through rehab, mm-hmm. took her back to Harrisburg, and you did the interview in your car as you were driving. By the way, your Ford Fiesta sounded kind of quiet there. I don't know if I'd use it as a <laughs> studio, but it, it wasn't that bad in the background. Uh, and it got a lot of miles during this documentary, <laughs> for sure. But she said to you that they need to support me they need to love me. And you also said it was probably the most angry and resentful that you had seen mm. Radina. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, and that actually really shocked me. I mean, when I when I got in the car and the second the door shut, she just kind of launched into her version of the events. And, and I just I couldn't put my finger on exactly what was going on. And for the first time, I sort of heard her taking less responsibility for her own actions and kind of blaming everybody else. And then it took me a while to kind of suss out why that was. And I think because in that moment she was feeling really abandoned by a lot of the people that had supported her in her life. Um, I think I mentioned in the documentary as well that there was around that time, there was a longtime friend of hers who'd been supporting her financially. He was paying her rent and her phone bill and um, would be helping helping her out sometimes with rides to places when she needed it. Um, Sounds like he wasn't really a great guy either for her to have in her life. But at the same time, he was really giving her a lot of uh, financial support that she needed. And he decided after this last relapse that he was completely done with her Um, and and did kind of dropped her in a not very nice way. So I think that was kind of fueling it as well. And then there was also this this whole thing that happened with Jordan. You know, when I first met her, Jordan was the huge motivating factor in her recovery and in her trying to, um, you know, stay clean and stay out of prison. Um, Because the other thing is that in order to be able to get back custody of Jordan, she had to have a place for them to be able to live and a steady job for a certain period of time. So those are things that are incredibly difficult for anybody coming out of prison to secure. And so then to have this child, you know, hanging in the balance on top of that was kind of upping the ante. And so I think realizing that she'd sort of lost that huge motivating factor for her. And I, I think she just was feeling terribly alone. And I think that was what was leading to her kind of you know, blaming other people more than I had seen before. Katie, we have about two minutes left. Uh, What do you want listeners to take away from this story? (sighs) That is the question I have been asking myself a lot, (laughs) especially over the last month. And I think what I want people to take away is just how difficult it is for anybody to change and just how difficult this reentry process is for people. I think the other thing that Redina's story shows is that we don't just need short-term fixes to these things, um, short-term programs that last maybe even you know six months or a year. This is a long-term journey, and of course resources are strapped, but we've got to start thinking about reentry really in two, three, five, beyond that 
stages if we're really going to try to help people and give them the support they need for long enough to be able to get back on their feet. Katie Culinary from WHYY, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Scott. Really appreciate it.